Spectrum's next. and Technology Show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news. Good afternoon. My name is Brad Swift. This week on Spectrum, our guest is Professor Pedro Sanchez, a soil scientist who is director of the Tropical Agriculture and the Rural Environment Program, senior research scholar and the director of the Millennium Villages Project at the Earth Institute at Columbia University. Dr. Sanchez was director general of the World Agroforestry Center, headquartered in Nairobi, Kenya, from 1991 to 2001, and served as co-chair of the UN Millennium Project Hunger Task Force. He is also professor emeritus of soil science and forestry at North Carolina State University and was a visiting professor at the University of California, Berkeley. Dr. Pedro Sanchez was elected into the National Academy of Sciences in 2012. In late April 2012, Dr. Sanchez presented the Hans Yeni Memorial Lecture at the invitation of the UC Berkeley College of Natural Resources. Prior to that lecture, Professor Sanchez talked with me about his life and work. Welcome to Spectrum, Pedro Sanchez. Thank you very much. I wanted to ask about how you initially got interested in soil science. Oh, boy. Well, it goes way back. I'm from Cuba. My dad owned a a fairly small farm, and I always liked to to play with dirt. Still am, and getting paid for it. But during those days, it was just playing. I always liked, uh, when I took a shower after being out all day, to see see the drain turn red with all the red mud. And... uh, my dad uh, wanted me to follow his steps uh, with a farm and fertilizer business he had in Cuba. And he said he would send me to Cornell because uh, he had gone there. And I said, fine, that was all fine with me. I started studying agronomy, uh, yeah, majoring in soils. And then I changed hearing seminars from outside people. By that time, telling us that India, with 200 million people, was going to starve, and this will be a global catastrophe. So I said, well, this will be something I could dedicate my life with. And I've been lucky enough to to say that I've done it. Yeah, I've dedicated my life to this. How did your work in tropical agriculture and rural environment issues evolve? The hook was first my interest in tropical soils, not soils in general, but tropical soils. Then the opportunities that Cornell offered me to go to the Philippines and get my PhD degree there. Then out of there, I learned about the Green Revolution. And I worked at my first international center, the International Rice Research Institute. And from there on, became an assistant professor at North Carolina State University, the first professor of tropical soils I had because I, they wanted to start a discipline on that. Sent me to Peru and worked on the green revolution of rice in Peru, and then afterwards into campus and start teaching tropical soils, and get research money, and and write the first edition of my book. How do you describe and characterize world hunger and then rural poverty? How are they different? How are they similar? Overlap? 
they usually are the same person who suffers hunger is almost invariably poor. They're both rural and, and urban, although the majority of the poor are, are indeed in rural areas of the world still. Because it's only recently that the 50% of people now live in cities. There's, yeah. And that's mostly in the developed world. No, in, in Latin America, it's 75% urban. Uh, Asia is about the same. Sub-Saharan Africa is the only large piece of land in the world where the majority of the people are still rural, about 70%. But in the next 20 years, they're probably going to be 50-50 or less. The, the rural to urban migration continues. Cities get incredibly huge. Hunger, I guess, then, for you, is caloric intake? Okay. Uh, th- there, is a, there is a metric that is uh, approved by the United Nations on hunger, and that is stunting, child stunting. Stunting being being short in height for your age. And below a certain level, uh, you're considered stunted. That is, is a product of, of hunger and disease, and on all sorts of things, but it's, it's the best metric we have for measuring hunger is, is in, in children. So that's, that's the best metric. There are many other ones related to the amount of food you consume in terms of calories, protein, vitamins, and micronutrients. The amount of food you're able to, you're able to acquire by money, by buying food like most of us do. And then the utilization of food within your body that also, that also has some, some important variables, especially if you have parasites and, and, and so on. To me, however, hunger is a state of mind. It's, it's a state of, not that I've really been hungry for very long. I've been very lucky. But it's a state of powerlessness. When you're hungry, nothing else matters. You really have to satisfy that hunger. And it's our survival instinct. For example, you cannot possibly think about the environment when you're hungry. So it's a mindset that brings us back to our most basic instincts. Today's guest on Spectrum is Pedro Sanchez, director of the Millennium Villages Project at the Earth Institute. You are listening to KALX Berkeley. You've been involved in the United Nations Millennium Village Project. Mm-hmm. You're a key part of that. Mm-hmm. And can you give us an overview of that project? It's an ongoing project, isn't it? Yeah, it is an ongoing project. I'm not bashful. It was my idea. And the idea is after finishing all these recommendations on the UN Millennium Development Goals, my committee working on hunger and similar committees working on health and water and sanitation and the environment and poverty and, and so on. I was in India seeing some model uh, they call uh, bio-villages of my co-chair, Professor Swaminathan, and I said to myself, why don't we do this in Africa where the situation is, is much worse? But how can we help in, impoverished villages achieve all the Millennium Development Goals? Not only hunger, but the whole thing. So I talked with my wife, and at that time we had received some prize money we had a quarter of a million dollars we could invest. So we decided to, uh, let's go invest that money 
and try to do it in a, in a village in Western Kenya that we both worked in. But when I went to see my director, Professor Jeffrey Sachs, he says, oh, no, this is such a great idea. You're not going to do it with your money. We're going to raise lots of money and do it. Again, he did it. Within four or five months, we had about $100 million in our coffers, so to speak, mostly from private philanthropists. And then we, we started conceiving then the, pro- the program. It says, okay, let's look for villages of about 5,000 people in which there are more than 20% malnourished kids under the age of five. Again, that famous metric on stunting that was... And the people are making less than a dollar a day, very hard to quantify. So we started one in Western Kenya called Saudi. And then uh, as more funds came out, another one in, in northern Ethiopia... Colorado. And within a year and a half or so, we had 80 such villages clustered in uh, around 14 sites in 10 African countries, each of them representing a major agricultural zone or farming system where hunger is common. In other words, we didn't have any in South Africa, for example. The villages were selected by us. We always had to go basically to the head of state, the president, the prime minister, and ask for permission, but we would make sure they would say, well, you have to do this in my village. And some tried, but didn't succeed. Basically, the way it started is a bunch of us from different disciplines, people working in health, people working in infrastructure, water and sanitation, and so on. We went to the village, had a village meeting. There were some government people, representative, and then we asked them, well, you want to become a Millennium Villages, you're going to have to work very hard because we're not going to give you any money. What we're going to do is help you out with things that you don't have in kind and get a lot of training on, on many things. And you're going to be asked a zillion questions with the questionnaires that we do. So that was the deal. And then the priorities were selected, working with committees of the villagers and specialists from our side, from the university side, balance the knowledge that the villagers had gotten by themselves with scientific, scientifically grounded idea. So the villagers basically said, uh, well, we need inputs for agriculture because the yields were very low. So what do you need? Well, we need some better seeds, hybrid seeds, and so on. And we need fertilizer. Well, we agreed with that. The other thing they asked right away, in addition to agricultural inputs, to grow more food was uh, a clinic. And we said, okay, let's get the plants from the Ministry of Health so it's a proper government clinic. You guys build it. You guys make the bricks and do all the things they know how to do. And we'll provide you with uh, with cement, with a tin roof, iron doors, and the things they couldn't buy but not not a dollar or any shilling change hands. And they did that, and they're very proud they did that for schools and even for warehouses later, uh, using the same principle, that they do most of the work and uh, we come in and provide the necessary things like cement or, or whatever. And that's been the rule in pretty much in all the villages with very, very few exceptions. Nice thing about that is that they own it. They own it. They have a sense of ownership. They take care of it. And it's very different than if the government or some NGO or some foundation builds these things and give them uh, the keys to it. Are they in some way cooperatives? Uh, usually 
a, an individual in the villages donates the land for the clinic to be built. Then, I don't know the ownership, but in most cases, basically the clinic is part of the Ministry of Health. In the case of fertilizers and, and seed, no. <laughs> it's, it's, it's well, and warehouses and things like that. Uh, yeah, warehouses and all that, is, uh, they're theirs. Uh, they're theirs, usually built on a place that is donated by a member of the community who owns that land. So there's a certain collective spirit? Oh, very much so. I mean, every farmer farms his or her piece of land. They plant, they harvest, they sell it. Share information. Oh, they share a lot of information. And right now, that basic living development goal has been achieved. Uh, they're getting more into different kinds of cooperatives that they band together to sell specific high-value products, such as milk or tomatoes or things like that. In most cases, they're already registered as formal cooperatives. That means they can get a line of credit from the banks. They're going through the process now of going from a subsidized-based economy now into getting into regular financial arrangements. Also, we and other institutions have worked with banks to convince them to lend to these people. And they say they had no collateral. It's true. Uh, an institution uh, called AGRA, which starts for the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa, broke ground by promising, no, by making a deal with, a, with one of the banks of the credit guarantees. They would refund the bank 50% of whatever they lose from people not paying their loans. Out of hundreds of millions of dollars that has happened, they have had to pay $4,000. The recovery rate of the loans from these people who have no collateral is the same as other people. And now banks are beginning to look at agriculture, smallholder agriculture, the bottom billion, so to speak, as, as a major source. This is Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. I'm talking with Professor Pedro Sanchez about hunger and agriculture in light of a global population of 9 to 10 billion people by 2050. And so does this project then in some ways answer the the critics of aid to developing nations that has failed for so long, decade after decade of sort of just dumping money on countries as opposed to this kind of an integrated project that you've well, created? First, yeah. First, let me say that this, this idea that all this money has been wasted is incorrect. I mean, there's certainly a lot of wastage, but certainly not. When I started working, uh, it was about 40 years ago, and by that time, countries like Mexico and Brazil and South Korea were receiving aid, and most of Latin America. Now there's no more aid, and now there are best customers in terms of buying American exports. So it has worked. The fact that, that India is no longer starving, but India is a food exporter, has worked. And not all the credit is, is deserved by the aid that donors like the United States give, but also by their own resources and their own, their own work. But no, aid has worked. Aid has worked, and, and yeah, not ideally and very subject to criticism, but by and large, I think aid in general, in broad terms, has worked, specifically not do you think there's an attainable rebalancing of agricultural incentives and markets in the developed world and in the developing world that would uh, work well, to you know, accommodate 9 to 10 billion people in the world? Well, first, let me say that in either case, developed or undeveloped, there's no such a thing as a, 
as the ideal market or the perfect market, which my economist friends say, well, this, oh, oh, you mean you're subsidizing fertilizer? Well, that's sort of distorting the market for fertilizers. And I said, what market? (laughs) What market are you talking about? It doesn't exist. Uh, I don't believe in perfect markets because I've never seen one. I'm not an economist, but minor in economics, so I know a little bit about it. And, and they're very distorted by, by subsidies. We subsidize very many rich farmers here who uh, really is getting to the point of the ridiculous. The question is, are we going to be able to feed 9 billion people by 2050? I would say probably yes. And uh, the bigger actors there are going to be South America and Africa. To be able to feed themselves, yes, and export food, yes. The land resources are there. Of course, all this has to do with politics. Nobody can predict what the politics of a specific country are going to be. Right. Like the Mali, like here, like Mali, you were saying uh, Mali, or or what? Who's going to win? Or the here, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I mean, all this food is political. Presidents get reelected because of uh, successful food programs in in Africa, but. Uh, that it's perfectly feasible, it is. I don't have, I don't have much, much question about that. And right now, the percentage of land dedicated to agricultural activity is about 12%? Yeah, and if you include pastures for uh, cattle, cattle production and so on, it's about 30% of the world's land area. And do you see that number being able to go up? A little bit. Maybe one or two percentage points, maybe one percentage points, but no more than that. But there, there will be an element in South America and in Africa that will be uh, opening new lands, lands that are not ecologically critical, tropical rainforests or wetlands or stuff like that, that, that are environmental protected. No way. And there, there is additional land that can be used. But the main, the main effort is to increase the yields per acre of the land already being used. Mm-hmm. And the best ways to do that in a going forward sustainable way, what do you feel about that? You need improved plants and you need a balanced set of inputs. Not too many and not too few. The genetically modified plants are, in my opinion, fine. They've gotten a very bad rap. Some of them are ecologically extremely sound, like a BT corn and BT cotton. They have uh, genes from a bacillum that when the insects bite and trying to suck the sap or something, they get killed. It's toxic to them. So they only kill the bad bugs and leaves all the other bugs who have no interest in getting involved with a, with a corn crop fine, as opposed to having insecticides that would kill all insects. So uh, there are a lot of good things in genetic modification. Anyway, we are all genetically modified organisms. We certainly are, all of us. It has been done by nature, by, by random, but it's so much different if you do it in, uh, in a lab. Conceptually, it's the same thing. There's very clear evidence, a study of the National Academy of Science published last year. In Europe, two big studies, one in the UK and one in Switzerland, and they all show the same thing, that there is no harm done to the environment and to human health with the use of GMOs that have been released. Then this is basically no different from the development of hybrid corn, which wasn't genetically modified in the sense of transporting one gene from one place to another one, but it was genetically modified by combining plants that would combine their own genes. 
So um, we need plants that produce a lot, that have deep roots, that are tolerant to diseases and insects, and more tolerant to drought and floods because of climate change. You need better plants, and uh, without them, we'll be nowhere. And the issue of inputs, agriculture is different from natural systems. Agriculture takes a tremendous amount of nutrients and energy and everything out of the system. And it's not returned back. And something has to be returned back. That's why we need fertilizers. Fertilizers, whether they're mineral or they're organic, we need to add additional nutrients. And, And there's no question about it. The issue of organic versus mineral, the plant doesn't care. The best way to do it is a combination of both, which is called conventional agriculture. Organic farming, if it produces higher premium price, go to it. But we know that the yields are lower and it requires more labor. So my view on all this is not to be dogmatic. You say you want to have a good balance. The, the time horizon on the, the mineral fertilizers, the phosphorus and potassium, do you, you see that running out at some point in the future? And Not really. Uh, the... Uh, of course, nitrogen is taken from the air, and we live in an atmosphere of 78% nitrogen, so it's, for all practical purposes, infinite. Potassium comes from mines. Right now, there are enormous reserves, unfortunately concentrated in two or three countries, like Canada and Russia. Phosphorus is the one we worry the most about, but now I've been about almost 50 years in this business, and every five years or so, I hear we're going to run out of phosphorus in the next uh, 50 to 100 years, and then you keep past and past and past. Why? There's more efficiency on the use, and there are more uh, deposits found. So I am really... Not worried. Not worried, frankly, not worried. I've heard that you're, you're undertaking a project with the Gates Foundation to map all the soils of Africa, is that...? Yes, yes. It's and the digital soil map of Africa, yeah. Okay. And what's going to happen with the data? Um, we're doing it now. The first uh, soil map of Africa on a scale of 100 by 100 meters, that's about a hectare. pixel would be a hectare, two and a half acres of soil properties. Uh, that'll come out later in the year. That'll be the first approximation. It'll be, it'll be rough. We're looking now for continuation of the project for another four years to really do it uh, better and, uh, and mainstream it into, into countries in Africa that want them to. But all the data will be accessible by the web, through the web, in a way that you can, sort of like Google Earth, you can pinpoint one place and and you can see the 100 by 100 meter pixels and it'll tell you how much sand it has and all that and you can query and and it'll give you a map of sand content, another map of organic matter or slope or, or whatever. Whatever you want. Professor Sanchez, thanks very much for joining us on Spectrum. You are very welcome, Brad. My pleasure. I'm very glad to be back in Berkeley. feature of Spectrum is to highlight some of the science and technology events happening locally over the next two weeks. Here's Rick Karneski and Lisa Katowicz with the calendar. On Wednesday, August 29th at 6 p.m., the Commonwealth Club at 595 Market Street in San Francisco 
is presenting a talk by the president of the Ocean Conservation Society, Madalena Beersy, entitled Dolphin Confidential, Confessions of a Field Biologist. She'll talk about her experiences at sea, from her earliest travels, to her transformations into an advocate for conservation and dolphin protection. She takes us inside the world of a marine scientist and offers a first-hand understanding of marine mammal behavior, as well as the frustrations, delights, and creativity that make up dolphin research. Beersy's fieldwork investigates dolphin social behavior and intelligence. She shares an honest, down-to-earth analysis of what it means to be a marine biologist in the field today and the life among the dolphins and addresses the critical environmental and conservation problems they face. The lecture is $20 or $8 for Commonwealth Club members or $7 for students with valid ID. Visit commonwealthclub.org for more info. Find out what ideas are percolating in the mind of William Gibson, one of our greatest contemporary science fiction writers, on Tuesday, September 4th at 7 p.m. at the Jewish Community Center in San Francisco, 3200 California Street. Author of the groundbreaking cyberpunk novel, Neuromancer, Gibson described the Internet before it existed and coined the term cyberspace. His first collection of nonfiction writings, Distrust That Particular Flavor, offers provocative insights on everything from the future of technology to compulsive online watch collecting to drug trafficking in Singapore. Again, that's Tuesday, September 4th at 7 p.m. For tickets and more information, go to www.jccsf.org. September's seminar about long-term thinking from the Long Now Foundation will be on Wednesday the 5th at 7.30 p.m. Tim O'Reilly is discussing the birth of the global mind, the evolution of communication and intelligence. Speech allowed us to communicate and coordinate. Writing allowed that coordination to span time and space. But that's not all. In one breakthrough computer application after another, we see a new kind of man-made symbiosis. The Google Autonomous Vehicle turns out not to be just a triumph of artificial intelligence algorithms. The car is guided by the cloud memory of roads driven before by human Google Street View drivers, augmented by powerful and precise new sensors. In the same way, crowdsourced data from sensor-enabled humans is leading to smarter cities, breakthroughs in healthcare, and new economies. The future belongs not to artificial intelligence, but to collective intelligence. This event will take place at the Cal Theater in San Francisco's Fort Mason. It is $10 or is free for members. Visit longnow.org for tickets and more info. The September East Bay Science Cafe welcomes John Duber, assistant professor in the Department of Bioengineering at UC Berkeley. He will talk about using synthetic biology to build microbial factories producing biofuels. One promising direction for the production of liquid transportation fuels is re-engineering the metabolism of microbes, like baker's yeast, to convert sugar into a chemical with desirable biofuel characteristics. Duber will describe work being done to produce biofuels using the rapidly emerging approaches of synthetic biology. John Duber was a 2012 winner of the U.S. Department of Energy's Early Career Research Award. East Bay Science Cafe is Wednesday, September 5th in the La Pena Lounge adjacent to Cafe Valparaiso at La Pena Cultural Center from 7 to 9 p.m. Location 3105 Shattuck Avenue in Berkeley. Now Lisa Katowicz with two news stories. 
Science News reports that two studies find that nanoscale pollutants can enter crop roots, triggering a host of changes to plants' growth and health. These tiny particles can stunt plant growth, boost the plant's absorption of pollutants, and increase the need for crop fertilizers. The new data now forewarn of agriculturally associated human and environmental risks from the accelerating use of manufactured nanomaterials, according to Patricia Holden at UC Santa Barbara and her colleagues. Their report is published online August 20th in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Nanomaterials that get released in the exhaust from diesel-fueled tractors can rain down onto crop fields. Those used in fabrics, sunscreens, and other products collect in the solids separated out of sewage and wastewater. The new studies offer a glimpse at the toxic effects such nanoparticles may pose to future crops as exposures rise. The ability of soy and other legumes to fix nitrogen is one of the most important microbial processes in agriculture. So the ability of nano-cerium to shut this process down was the most significant and most troubling new finding. The UC Berkeley Solar Car Club team, Cal Sol, placed fourth in a field of 12 cars in the 2012 American Solar Challenge in July. The race was run in stages from Rochester, New York, ending in St. Paul, Minnesota. Congratulations to the CalSol team. The music heard during the show is by Lastana David from his album Folk and Acoustic, made available by a Creative Commons License 3.0 attribution. Thank you for listening to Spectrum. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time.